goodness. Every male is half nuts during this month. Pulling for his team and uh, letting his victories or losses determine his outlook on life. It's really a difficult month for some of you. My teams lose early, so I don't have much to worry about. Guys, uh, next week, let's remember, we have a, a very a special guest here, and you'll want to come and also bring your friends. Uh, Dr. Philip Johnson is going to be here. He's one of the real uh, outspoken advocates for the doctrine of creation in popular culture. He's very helpful to uh, Christians in reminding us of the doctrine of creation and what the Bible has to say about some of the questions being raised today about that doctrine. And you'll notice in the discussion questions on your tables that they don't have a whole lot to do with Zechariah. We're asking you to take next week another good look at Genesis 1 and 2. And in your discussion groups, prepare yourself for a really fine presentation on Thursday morning. I know you'll enjoy Dr. Johnson. Uh, He's a graduate of Harvard and the Chicago School of Law, and he's been a professor at uh, UCAL Berkeley for a long, long time and uh, has written a number of very helpful books. In fact, you may want to read his book, Darwin on Trial, or some other things that he's written uh, even before next Thursday. But let's, let's plan to be here and enjoy him next Thursday. This morning, we want to face a, a very important issue, and uh, it is the issue of what difference it makes if you're living a happy life, a joyful life. Uh, what difference would it make if you just decide to be a grumpy old man or to become a grumpy old man? And some of you are starting off awfully early, I noticed, to being grumpy old men. And I just, want, I just have a word for you. When you get old, you just become more like yourself. And that's the dangerous thing about being old. So you better change your old self now. Uh, I started about 20 years ago looking at some old men and just praying, Lord, make me like that. And you better set your trajectory early because you get to about 75, there ain't a whole lot you can do about it. You've already set your, your pattern. So I'm not talking to old men as much as I am young men this morning and asking you the question, what difference does it make whether you're a joyful person or a grumpy old person, uh, in, even in young adult skin? Well, we know what difference it makes in some ways. We know that when you're not joyful, it saps your strength and it saps the strength of everybody around you. It's amazing what a sinkhole sadness can be and uh, being down in the mouth. We know that if we're not joyful, it, it undermines our ability to help somebody else. Help them either with temporal material things or to help them with eternal things. Who wants to go to a sourpuss for advice? They usually don't. So if you want to be an advisor to other people and to influence other people, you're going to have to cultivate joy. We know that uh, the lack of joy betrays a lack of contentment in Christ. That's the big problem theologically. That if we're just grumpy old guys, then we're not happy. And we're not happy. That means that we couldn't be happy with Christ, couldn't be happy with anything else. So it betrays a lack of contentment with Christ. Therefore, we don't have a whole lot to say to the rest of this world who probably has a lot larger problems than we do. So this issue of joy is a very important one. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. And you'll find this on pages 15, 16 and 15, 17. And let's pick up where we left off last time. And this text, uh, chapter 7 and 8, were written about two years after the beginning of Zechariah. As a matter of fact, 
Leave your finger there and go back to page 1508. And look at the little chart on the bottom left-hand side. This is in the introduction to Zechariah. And you'll see the, the comparison of dates with Haggai and Zechariah. You can see their contemporaries. And it all has to do with Haggai with building the second temple. Zechariah also is encouraging the same. And the temple uh, is in the process of being built. They're, they had arrested the work, remember, because they ran into all kinds of difficulties. But if you'll look down at December the 7th, 518, you'll see that's when Zechariah is calling for repentance. And that is two years after Zechariah's preaching had begun in October, November of 520. So <coughs> this is a good two years after he first started preaching. And they had begun again the work on the temple, but their work was still in the midst of some spiritual problems in their own hearts. And we're going to see what those problems were. And those problems were not leading to joy. So spiritual problems underneath will tamper with your joy. And uh, so we need to deal with the underlying issues. And that's what Zechariah is going to talk about. And he's going to talk about this issue of joy. So I want us to notice, uh, first of all, in chapter 7, this will be one, verses 1 through 14, that authentic joy comes from authentic worship. This is the first problem that arises because there's a question we're going to see in this text from some men in Bethel who are asking a tactical question, not a strategic question. Zechariah asked the strategic question. But the men from Bethel ask a tactical question. And they say, you know, every fifth month, of every year, we fast and mourn and remember that the temple was destroyed. And the temple was actually destroyed in the fifth month, uh, you know, in 586 B.C. And you'll, you could find this in Second Kings chapter 25. In fact, on the second page of your notes, go ahead and turn there and you'll see we've got four months listed there that were that were remembered by the Israelites in exile. They remembered the fourth month. That's when the walls fell down. They remembered the fifth month. That was when the temple was destroyed. They remembered the seventh month. That's when Gedaliah was assassinated, their leader. They remembered the tenth month because that was in the first place when Nebuchadnezzar began to put a siege around Jerusalem. So these four months were remembered as solemn fasts among the Israelites in exile. So we're going to see some men from Bethel come and ask Zechariah a question. Now that the temple is in the process of being built, <clears throat> we're only a couple of years away from it, should we continue to honor that fifth month fast? That's the question they're asking. Zechariah, like a good preacher, takes their tactical question and turns it into a strategic question. And you're going to see that he says, let's talk about something a little deeper than that. Let's talk about why you're even asking that question. Let's talk about what a real fast is. And let's talk about what a real feast is. So Zechariah goes in chapter 7 and 8, this kind of long-winded answer. You know, you know how it is. You stop your preacher and ask you some simple biblical question. Thirty minutes later, you still don't have an answer. And that's what Zechariah is doing. And uh, the reason for that is preachers, generally speaking, are generally speaking. Uh, that's one problem. The other problem is preachers are always trying to get down below the surface of the, the presenting question and get to the real issues. That's what Zechariah is doing. He's going beyond the presenting question 
and getting to the real question, at least as he sees it, and I think as the Holy Spirit sees it. So this simple question leads to this two-chapter sermon that really is probably several sermons patched together here by Zechariah later in written form. But let's take a look at chapter 7 then with that in mind, and let's see what kind of response this poor, the poor old guys from Bethel get when they ask this just real simple tactical question about whether they should keep fasting in the fifth month. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? And the Negev and the western foothills were settled. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly. They turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Okay, let's take a look at this. Authentic joy comes from authentic worship. Now what we want to notice in these first seven verses is that our worship must be heartfelt. That's what Zechariah is pressing. Our worship must be heartfelt. What was the problem here with these folks? The first three verses or four verses, they tend to ask, we tend to ask the wrong questions. We ought to be asking about our hearts and about our relationship with Christ and about our obedience to His Word. And we're asking ritualistic questions. What time Sunday school? That's the kind of question we had. Or can I get a parking spot near the church? That's the kind of question we ask. What color is the carpet? Are they going to have bananas or bagels or both? You know, or whatever it is. We always ask the wrong questions. And here you have, it's a legitimate question. Should these fasts be continued? Because after all, the temple was being rebuilt. But it's not the main question. And Zechariah wants to be sure that they look at the main question. And in this text, we're going to learn something about our salvation. And that is that it's joyful. And we're going to learn how to cultivate that joy. So we tend to ask the wrong questions. Secondly, we tend to forget the goal of worship. You notice that he says 
in, in verse 5. Was it really for me that you fasted? Now, let's take a look at what was happening with the Israelites, with their feasts and their fasts. You remember that uh, from the days of the Exodus, that the Israelites were given three major feasts. They were given the Feast of Passover, which, of course, is the Whopper. That's when the death angel passed over the the homes of the Israelites because there was the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorposts. So Passover was a big one. Uh, There was also the Feast of Tabernacles when uh, they would uh, celebrate the uh, protection of God in the wilderness. And you remember, they would all come to Jerusalem for a week and live in lean-tos. We'd probably go and live in tents because the people had lived in tents in the wilderness. So the Feast of Tabernacles, they would do that. Then they would have the big in-gathering feast of Pentecost when they would celebrate the in-gathering of the harvest. So these were celebrated feasts. What did they celebrate? They celebrated the redemptive work of God. So three times a year, every male who is over 12 years of age was required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would just be packed with people. Why? Because we're going to have a party. And we're not celebrating ourselves. We're not just getting drunk and, and learning a new dance step. No, we're celebrating the living God. We're worshiping. It was a worship party. And they would spend a good deal of their church resources on having big feasts to celebrate the work of God. Now, that was the history of Israel. Now, what happened when they went into exile? Turn with me. Leave your finger there in Zechariah 7. But turn with me to Psalm 137. And this would be on page 954. And this psalm is written by the Jews when they were in exile. And they were bemoaning what was being said to them by the Babylonians who were taking them into captivity. And let's see what they said about their songs and their festivals when they're in exile. This is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. (coughs) So you see they're saying, you have these joyful songs you sing three times a year. Sing some of them for us. And they're saying, how can we do that? Those songs come from a happy heart. Look at verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord? While in a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. That would be like saying to a Christian uh, who's found in deep sin. And some pagan comes up to him and says, hey, so, broke up your marriage. Committed adultery. Hey, let's sing some songs. Let's go get drunk and sing together. And he says, you know, wine for me is the wine of the Eucharist. And a feast for me is a feast of the Lord. How can I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? So the Jews knew that they were under discipline for their sin. They were exiled. They were, they were regurgitated out of the land, as the Hebrew puts it. They were spit out. They were vomited out of Israel because God found them so distasteful. How could they sing songs of joy? And they said, look, 
If I find my joy in anything else but Jerusalem, may I forget how to work? May I cease to talk? And I wonder how many of us would say, if heaven is not my highest joy, may I lose my ability to celebrate. And we're trying to find joy in all different kinds of things other than Jerusalem. That is heaven itself. The city coming down out of heaven. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How's that for a party? That's all they could think about was the vengeance of God against those who were oppressing them. Then look at Lamentations. You know, you go on over you know, to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. This would be page 1290. <coughs> Excuse me. Page 1291. And here is a lamentation, a weeping, a moaning of those who were in Jerusalem under its uh, destruction. This is written by Jeremiah. He was left in Jerusalem. Everything's leveled. The people are in exile. And he's lamenting. You know, one thing we could learn from our Jewish friends is how to lament. Uh, they were experts at it. And notice this one verse, chapter 1, verse 4, 1291. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her maidens grieve. And she is in bitter anguish. The point here is no one comes to her appointed feasts. The point is that when the children of Israel go into exile, they no longer celebrate their feasts. So the feasts have now been replaced with four fasts. And that's the condition, the condition of being in exile. Now, we sometimes tend to forget the goal of worship. Sometimes they forgot the goal of worship. They knew that their feasts had been replaced with fasts. And in their minds, the reason they were fasting, unlike ourselves, we tend to fast for purposes of spiritual formation, for purposes of personal piety, and uh, developing a closer walk with the Lord. Their purpose for the fast was to get out of exile. That if they mourned and expressed sorrows for their sin, God would hear their voice and bring them home from exile. And so they continued to fast four times a year in major fasting events. So for the Jew, a fast is not so much for personal spiritual formation. It's because they're in exile. And even today, you may ask the question, when would these fasts ever be removed? When would these fasts, when would we ever return back to the feast days? The fasts are still celebrated in Judaism. So they're waiting for something, aren't they? Still waiting to come out of exile. Who's going to bring them out of exile? The, the Messiah. So you fast until Messiah comes. Let me, let me, give you an example of this. If you'll turn over in your New Testament to Mark chapter 2. Jesus speaks of this. In Mark chapter 2, if I can find it. 
Yes. Now, uh, this is verse 18. This is page 1604. Mark 2, 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. All right. John's disciples, we know, were rigorous. John the Baptist. And we know the Pharisees were rigorous. And they fasted regularly. They fasted, you know, at least weekly. But they were fasting, and some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Important question. Here's the answer. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So you see, Jesus is making an eschatological statement here. He's not making a statement about how you develop your personal piety. He's saying, what's the purpose of a fast? The purpose of a fast is to draw near to the Lord, to come out of exile, and be returned to your glory. And to be in the presence of the living God in the temple. When you're in the presence of God in the temple, you don't fast, you feast. And he's saying the bridegroom has come. He is in the midst of his people again. God has visited his people. They're out of exile because the bridegroom is here. Therefore, we do not fast. But, he says, when the bridegroom leaves, ascends into heaven, okay, you can return to your fasts. And so now we live in an age that is both already and not yet. We already have the presence of the Messiah, and so we return the feasts. We are waiting for the physical return of the Messiah, and therefore we fast. Because, as Peter calls us in Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we are the diaspora. We are the dispersion. You know, we speak often of the Jewish diaspora, the dispersion among all the nations. And then, of course, Babylon was a dispersion, a diaspora, and they were brought back. Well, we are called the diaspora. We're in many nations. We don't have a nation. We can't find our nation. Where is our city? We don't have a city. Oh, yeah, we do. It's called Jerusalem, coming down out of above, out of heaven. And that's when the diaspora returns to the the holy hill of God, and all the people assembled. Just read Revelation again. And so we're gathered, and then we'll be in total feast. That's the reason that in Revelation 19, the imagery that's used is that of a marriage feast. Because the marriage, the, the uh, lamb comes, and we're going to have the wedding feast of the lamb. Because the bridegroom is there, and he's there eternally. So no more fasts. We're completely out of exile. We've returned home. But now we have both feasts and fasts. But the question is, what's the purpose of your fast and what's the purpose of your feast? Sometimes I think the purpose of, of the wine and the Eucharist is just get a little buzz and go back to your seat. And that's the way some people treat church. The church is there for me, for my convenience. If someone's sitting in my pew, I'm ticked. I mean, I, I, I saw one day... Uh, one of our elderly citizens, I won't name the gender, uh, but they have a regular seat in church and some poor visitor had the gall to sit in that seat. And the person just came and stood and just looked at him. 
And they, they kind of sheepishly scooted over, and that person sat down right in their seat. And that's what we care about. The feast is for us. And that's what Zechariah is asking. Why are you fasting? Is it because you just want to be delivered out of exile? Or because you want me? And you know, sometimes your wives are wondering that. Do you just want sex? Or do you want me? Do you want a really tasty meal? Or do you want me? Do you want what I can do for you? Or do you want me? There's a big difference, isn't there? And we are very sensitive to when people treat us that way. And we can tell, can't we? When someone just wants what we can provide or if they really want us. You could tell it with your children. Young children sometimes, they just want something when they want it. And you're there to be the vending machine to give it to them. And it's your coins going into the machine also, in case you didn't notice. And then you notice when that child looks at you and really wants to be with you. Boy, your heart just melts, doesn't it? How do you think the father feels? He knows when you're just using him like a vending machine and when you really want him. And that's what Zechariah is talking about. That we tend to forget the goal of worship. Now, Zechariah moves to another issue in verses 8 through 13, and that is our worship must be accompanied by social justice. This is no new story. In verses 8, in the first half of 9, we see that we must administer true justice. That means in the courtrooms, the rich and the poor are to be treated alike. And in America, I have to say it, the black and the white and Hispanic are to be treated alike, and they're not. And the Christians are to be the ones to say it does not matter what someone's background is, how long they've been a citizen here, or even if they're not a citizen. I'm not claiming to take a position on some of the issues that are before us right now. All I'm saying is that whatever justice is, the Christian wants it administered equally to all of God's creation. And we do not say that Americans have some special divine privilege over other nationalities. I'm not saying that immigrants are to be treated in every way as a citizen is. There are reasonable laws. I'm saying that if you'll look uh, that in, in the second point we want to make here, that we must show mercy and compassion. Look at this list. Widow, fatherless, alien, poor. Alien. Mercy, compassion. This is the heart of Jesus Christ. He constantly had his eyes on the disenfranchised. And if our laws do not serve the alien and the fatherless and the widow and the poor, then we need to change our laws and we're the ones who need to be involved in changing it. I don't know what that means. I'm not a lawyer uh, and I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not an expert in government. I just know where our heart is supposed to be. And when someone comes here as an alien, whether they have status or not, it would make sense, wouldn't it? The first place they would flee to would be the church. Because we're to be experts on dealing with the alien and the poor. This is, in fact, the only place in the New Testament, if I have my facts right, where you have all four of those listed together in one place. The poor is, is often not listed with the widow, the fatherless, and the alien. But here he has the poor. He's making the point, anybody who's marginalized, anybody who's disadvantaged. So our worship must be accompanied with these things. He says, if you're fasting or feasting for the right reason, which is to find me, 
and to enjoy me, then that will issue in social justice. If there is no social justice, you're in church for the wrong reason. I don't know what the reason is. I just know it's the wrong reason. Because when you are feasting or fasting for the right reason, it always issues in social justice. No exceptions. So the churches that are really worshiping God for who He is, you'll find are those who take care of the poor. You say, how do I do this? I'm glad you asked. In Memphis, we are a highly privileged people. Some of our finest leaders are involved as either executives or board members of some of the finest ministries in the world. They're right here in Memphis. And any of us who wants to get involved with the poor, you've got friends right in this room who would be glad to help you get involved with the poor for God's sake. We've got SOS, Icon Ministries, Streets, Emmanuel Gospel Center, Neighborhood Christian Center, Memphis Athletic Ministries. Those of you from Bellevue have this huge thing you've got up here in the north side of town. And if I've left some of you out, that's just the point. A bunch of people are left out by that just simple, non-exhaustive list I just gave. And some of those representatives and board members and directors are right here in this room. If you want to get involved with the poor, just ask me and I'll be glad to get you directed. But what God is saying is those who are worshiping me for the right reasons will automatically be involved with those in the bottom of the barrel. And it, it ought to make a difference to the poor that they live in this town with so many outstanding Christians like yourselves. Now, he says this is what the earlier prophet said, and you can just make a note someday to go to Isaiah 58. There's an earlier prophet. And see what Isaiah had to say about how to fast. And Isaiah asked some of the same questions that Zechariah did. So Zechariah is saying, this is nothing new. I'm just saying to you what the early, in verse 7 he says, these are what the earlier prophets said. And then he goes on thirdly and says, that this social justice even involves evil thoughts. We must refrain from evil thoughts toward our neighbor. Evil thoughts. That means plotting something negative or hurtful to a neighbor. So here, don't think that the New Testament is the only one that talks about intentions. The Old Testament speaks about intentions. And your thoughts. God judges our thoughts. You know, it's generally the small decisions in life that prove our faithfulness. We're really good about going to the Lord and fasting and in prayer and seeking His will before we get married. Lord, is this really the one you'd have for me? And we struggle with that decision. I'd love to see some guys struggle with seeking the Lord's will after they get married. Fasting and praying. How do I love this wife? The one you gave me. That would be what the Lord is seeking in refraining from even evil thoughts toward our neighbor. Then in verses 11 through 14, we see that our worship must be accompanied by obedience. He says, you're stubborn, you're deaf, and you deserted me. And look what this does. Our stubbornness only makes him angry. Our deafness makes him deaf. What's happening here is that God is saying in the first part of Zechariah, chapter 1, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. If you depart from me, I'll depart from you. So he's basically saying, you choose whether you want to be near me or or you want to be away from me. And like a waiting father who loved his son, he waits. The father waits. You go off in the pig pen. Father waits and longs for you to come home. Meanwhile, you're going to be in the pig pen. And the father doesn't just send some servants down, dig you out of the pig pen, clean you up. No, he waits. And then we're told the 
the younger son came to his senses and returns home. And when we do not listen to the Lord, don't think that you have a wonderful prayer life. I've had guys talk to me about all kinds of things. Uh, practices in their business that were not loving or having a re- an unreconciled relationship or uh, messing around sexually, being immoral sexually. And they'll say, you know, I'm really praying about this. And I'm just so glad that I have, even, at least I have an active prayer life. And I'm going, you know, it really isn't doing you much good. Because when you're deaf to the Lord, He is deaf to you. And we are told even in 1 Peter 3, if you don't want your prayers to be hindered, you better be considerate to your wife. Because Peter says, if you're not considerate to your wife, otherwise your prayers will not be heard. So gentlemen, if we want to have an active prayer life, we have to have an active life of repentance. They go hand in hand. And this is not the only place in the Bible. The Old Testament is replete with this. That the Lord disciplines us when we are in a disobedient state. And so let's not be presumptuous pretending that we have an active relationship with the Lord when we're in active rebellion. And then our desertion leaves us desolate. He says, you're the ones who made this pleasant land absolutely desolate. I brought in the Babylonians and you were judged, but you're the ones who turned it into a desolate land. Now, this is very interesting. What Zechariah is saying is that our joy is going to come, our authentic joy is going to come from authentic worship. Authentic worship means that we are worshiping because we really want Him. And if we really want Him, that's going to issue into social justice, love of our neighbor, and it's going to issue into a life of obedience and listening to Him. There's authentic worship. And he's saying that there is found authentic joy. This has been verified in a typical, typically American way, statistically. <laughs> you know, George Gallup has been doing studies for a long, long time. And, and some years ago, he did a study to find out how many people in, in America say they believe in God and how many claim to be religious. And this is a few years ago. Gallup found that 95% of American people claim to believe in God. And 81% of them claim to be religious people. But when Gallup started to ask some more particular questions, he found this, that only 12% say that their religion significantly affects their day-to-day life. So you have 95% of people who believe in God, 81% who, who claim to be religious, but only one out of eight, 12%, say that it really makes any difference. There are your authentic worshipers. They're the people who ought to have joy, that 12%, correct? So if Zechariah 7 is correct, that authentic joy comes from authentic worship, and authentic worship is living a life that does have something to do with your neighbor every day, it does have something to do with the way you listen to the law of God every moment, those ought to be the people who are joyful. What's very interesting, Gallup then further researched these 12% of the people and compared them to the rest of the population. Here's what he found out. They, very significantly, are much happier than the rest of the population. 67% of that 12% would say they're extremely happy in life. Of those who are decidedly uh, not sincere 
religious people, uh, about 30% of them say they're happy. This is over twice the factor of happiness. And you could ask yourself the question, why? I have a feeling it has something to do with simply God's giving them joy in their lives. Gallup also found that that 12% have stronger families. Their divorce rate is significantly lower. Now, we've said many times in here, the divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is the same, or now the Christians is higher because they get married more often. But that's only those who claim to be Christians. The group that Gallup is talking about, those for whom religion really makes a difference, those who really do pray every day and so on, their marriages are much stronger, their families are much stronger. He also found, interestingly, that this group of 12% who had authentic worship in their lives, uh, they were much more tolerant of people of other races and other religions. For all the talk in the media (coughs) about the fundamentalists, the conservative Christians, those who believe in the Bible being the real problem here and causing divisions, no, they're the very ones who are the most tolerant in this country. Gallup found out some years ago. He also found that it is that 12% who contribute more of their time and their money to the poor. No surprise. Because they're authentic worshipers. So, it's true in the Bible. It's going to be true in practice, gentlemen. Let's look at chapter 8. And here we're going to see that authentic joy not only comes from authentic worship, but it comes from authentic faith. What we believe. What our deepest convictions are. This is where your joy is going to come from. What do you really Believe with deep conviction. Let's look at these first eight verses. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Wow, what a statement. We must believe that God will enter our lives. Or you might say re-enter our lives. He had been in our lives. We turned our back from Him. We go into exile. We mourn and fast. We must believe He's going to bring us home. He's going to restore our greatness. And you see in verses 1 and 2, He is jealous for us. In verse uh, 3, He will dwell with us. So He deeply loves us. This is where your joy is going to come from. From knowing how deeply you are loved. How precious you are in the sight of the Lord. And that's hard for us to do. Because nobody knows what a louse you are than you yourself. Well, maybe your wife, number one, but you're second. You know how lousy you are. And you study verses like this. You can just sit on verses one and two and get that vision of the Lord's love in your head for you. We must believe this to have joy. He will dwell with us. And in verse 3, He will reestablish us in truth and holiness. He will make you a truthful man. He will make you a holy man. You've got to believe He can do that. You can't do it. Your wife can't do it. Your children can't do it. But God can do it. And you give your life over to be a man of truth and a man of holiness. 
Give your life over for those purposes and He can do it. In verses 4 through 6, we see He will give us peace. He'll allow the old and young to take over the streets. Who would have believed that Manhattan, that Giuliani could have turned it around so that it would be a safe place to walk? It's really nice walking in Manhattan. And I tell you what, it's, there's a difference between walking there now and walking there back in the 60s. It really is. I remember being afraid in several streets, 60s and 70s. That place has changed. That's just from human effort. Well, do you believe that God can give you peace? A sense of peace in your own life and a sense of peace in the community. He can if we give ourselves over to Him. He will regather us. We must believe this. There's going to be a family reunion. Folks, we face funerals every week. How could I possibly stand that? How could you stand it if we do not know in our deepest being that there's going to be a family reunion? We're going to be regathered. We trust Him for this. If you don't trust Him for that, then your joy is nothing but idiocy. It's just like the guy who jumps off the Empire State Building halfway down says, so far so good. That's what joy is in this life if you don't believe in the family reunion. You're headed for destruction. Why should you be happy? You're crazy. You must be drunk or on drugs. But if you believe in the family gathering, then not to be joyful is idiocy. You've forgotten where we're headed. You've forgotten what this pain and this partying is leading to. This grand reunion. And he promises that in verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 6, He'll be faithful to us. That means this will never end. We will never be separated from Him again. And I believe that. And therefore, I am joyful. And that's where your joy is going to come from. It's not going to come from more money, more sex, more food, more vacations, better, you know, lower handicap. It ain't coming from there. Those will eventually lead to disappointment. I know someone who has a very low handicap. But now his arthritis has finally got to him. He can't play golf anymore. That's pretty miserable. When your life is focused on getting your handicap as low as it can be. Taylor, I'm not talking about you. Get over it. <laughs> but now that you mentioned it, no, I'm just kidding. Now, verse, uh, let's look at um, uh, verses 9 through 13. And you see here that he's offering... Physical protection and material necessities. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets who were there when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. Before that time, there were no wages for man or beast. No one could go about the business safely because of his enemy. For I did turn every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops. And the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so will I save you. And you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid. But let your hands be strong. He's saying, I will be your provider for protection and necessities. We must believe that God will meet our needs. And this is precisely the reason that the Apostle Paul could say in one of his lowest points in life, in prison in Rome, I have all things because through Christ I am sufficient. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Christ is in me. He will provide everything I need. Do you trust Him? This is the question. If you believe He has your best interest at heart, 
And one day in this life or the next, he's going to give you what you need. You will have the foundation for joy. If you think you're supposed to grab for all the gusto, you're supposed to take care of yourself, you're supposed to make your provisions what they should be, you're going to be a very unhappy person. Because you'll be striving all your life for these cheap, temporal things. That no matter how many you have of them, they're going to pass away. Or you will get more than you need in this life and take your joy out of your large bank account and then you're going to die. I just had, uh, I was back at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian to do an officer's retreat and this is a church I pastored a dozen years ago. <laughs> and one of the young guys came up to me and said, do you remember the uh, marriage counseling advice you gave me some years ago? I said, uh, no, I'm not sure I want to know. He said, well, I told you all my woes and all my problems, and here's what you told me. You said, Bill, life's tough, and then you die. (laughs) If you want some real pastoral counseling, go to Rocky or Ron or Paul. That's true. It's true. I'm embarrassed that he remembered it and quoted me, but it's true. And your only hope for joy is knowing that ultimately God's going to take care of all this. And it's not going to be in this life. It's going to be in the next one. When you get home, reunited in Jerusalem, the holy city, in the city of truth. Now, verses 14 through 19 shows us this. We must believe that God will give us joy. He is the source of joy. Look at verses 14 through 19. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster upon you and showed no pity when your fathers angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good against Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. And render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against your neighbor. And do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is the reason you are effective in social justice. This is the reason you do devote yourself to your wife and children. This is the reason you do devote yourself to your church and your community. Because you believe the Lord has good intentions towards you. He's got wonderful things stored up for you. He intends to give you joy now and forevermore. And you know He's the answer for this. And if you believe that down deep in your heart, you have the source of joy available to you. If you don't, you don't. Because you cannot suck joy out of a dying world. It's like sucking joy out of a corpse. You can't do it. So our faith will remove our fears. He says, don't fear. Whenever the disciples saw an angel, they were terrified. They were always told, don't be afraid. This is not meant for judgment. This is meant for your blessing. This is salvation to you. Don't be afraid. And so not being afraid, we work. Because we know that our labor is not in vain, says the Apostle Paul. Secondly, our faith will change our relationships. We'll be truthful. We will be just. Thirdly, our faith will gladden our worship. These words that are used here in verse 19... These months will become joyful, glad, happy. Three words that are used for the festivals in Jerusalem. Those same three words. You'll find those words also used for a marriage feast. Glad, happy, joyful. The Hebrew words. 
And so he's basically saying, I'm turning these fasts into feasts for you. That's my intention. And he's, the fasting that you do, for example, some of you may fast on Good Friday. I always have a fast for myself on Good Friday. That's a, there's a typical fast day. There's, you know, Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. The, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death. And so I remember that it was my sin that caused it. And fasting helps me remember that. There is a purpose for fasting. We mourn for our sin. We want to draw nearer to the Lord. We want to show our complete dependence upon Him. Fasting does some good things for us. But gentlemen, three days later is Easter Sunday. In this life, we never fast without a vision toward the feast because the Lord is turning Good Friday into Easter. So even in this life when we fast, we fast with a sense of anticipation about the dawning of the day that is coming just ahead of us. And that's the way that we do it. Our faith will gladden our worship. So it gladdens our relationships. It gladdens our interior self. We lose our fears, but it gladdens our worship. And these months are turned into feasting. You say, how is this so? How does it work out in this life? Well, what, what are the feasts for today? You know, if you look at the Old Testament, we named the three major feasts, and there were other feasts they had. What's the New Testament? Comparable. You don't, you don't seem to have any feasts given to you in, in any of the, the epistles or the Gospels, that these are the New Testament feasts that the Lord wants us to keep. He doesn't say keep the Passover. He doesn't say, you know, uh, keep the tenth of uh, the uh, gathering uh, of ingathering, the Pentecost. We've added these church feasts since the New Testament was written, but what's the New Testament feast? It's the Lord's Day. Gentlemen, that is our feast. It's every week. And somehow we've lost a sense of it. And the question is still asked about the Sabbath that you have in Isaiah 57 and 58. Same questions asked about the Lord's Day. Who is it for? Is it primarily because you want something out of God and you're going to come to church and pray hard enough until you get what you want? Or is it because you really delight yourself in Him? And Sunday is a feast day every week, not three times a year. It's not just Christmas and Easter. Those are big church feasts that we put on. Those came after the New Testament, those feast, day, those feast periods. Sunday is the one that's in the New Testament. And so our fasting has turned to feasting because now we do it every day, every week. And so when you return to the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day, and those of you who have Eucharist every week, that's a thanksgiving. It's a feast every week. And for those of us who have rather dry worship services and don't have Eucharist every week, we can still pretend. <laughs> no, we feast too. With songing, with singing, with celebration, with reunited, reunited family. And we make a joyful noise in the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Give thanks to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His love is everlasting. His truth endureth through all generations. There's the love and the truth. So in our age, then, we feast on the Lord's day. And we turn these fasts into feasts. Now, we must believe, fourthly, not only that God will enter our lives and that God will meet our needs and that God will give us joy, but we must believe that God will lift us up. Look at these last four verses. Verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. Now what we learn in those verses is because of us, the nations will seek the Lord. Because of us, what about us? Because we found truth and holiness and justice and love and joy. And when people's lives are turned inside out by joy, other lives want to find out where you got that joy. How are you able to deal with your cancer the way you deal with it? How are you able to deal with the loss in your life the way you deal with it? How are you able to deal with financial disaster the way you're dealing with it? How are you able to deal with that automobile accident the way you're dealing with it? There's a joy down underneath they want to know about. And so our joy draws all the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the last verse. This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 23. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. What this verse teaches us, because of the Lord, the nations will seek us. They, the, the human heart wants the Lord. And the church has the Lord. And because of the Lord, the nations will come to His people. Because of joy. And joy is found in authentic worship and in authentic faith. Lastly, let's ask the question, so what? Number one, joy is not optional for the followers of Christ. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. He said, rejoice. And Paul was in prison when he said that. And he said in chapter 1 of that letter, I will rejoice. And sometimes it takes that kind of determination. And you say, well, you know, if you were under my circumstances, what are you doing under those circumstances? You're under the grace of God. Those circumstances do not determine your outlook because your circumstances happen to be eternal. And what you've done, you've traded your eternal perspective for this little narrow perspective. You're now in prison. Well, I'm really sorry. I really am. That's a terrible place to be. But you have this. And this is a little moment in this. And you're going to take joy because of this. Because this is more important than this. So it's not an option. If you have a deep conviction that the Lord is and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and you're seeking Him, you're going to find Him and you are stinking rich and free and happy and healthy. And you have your family, the family of God around you. No excuse. Let's not cut ourselves any slack, no matter what the temporary circumstances. Secondly, joy must be strenuously cultivated. Paul said in that same letter, I have learned the secret of being content. He had to learn it. It was hard for him. It's not easy to be stoned and left for dead and then be happy about it. You have to learn that. There's a mystery to contentment and to happiness and joy. And it's in Christ that you find it. So you have to study it. Because by nature, our happiness factor is tied to the most recent comment someone made to us, the most recent deal we made, the most recent golf score we've got. And that's not the Lord's way. Thirdly, our joy is very powerful. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you want strength in helping other people, strength in being a man of God, it's going to be because you're joyful, because that's where your strength is. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. 
That's where your strength is going to be. I've known it because I have benefited from the strength of your joy many, many times. Lastly, joy is a gift. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So that's where you get it. You say, I'm just an Eeyore by nature. Okay. There are people like this. (laughs) And they're a gift, actually, to us. We need the melancholies in this life. I'm grateful for the melancholies who are here. But you know what? Your joy never came from your old stupid self in the first place. Your joy comes from Him, and He's not Eeyore. He's God. And He happens to be full of joy. And He gives Himself to you and all of His communicable attributes. Authentic worship, authentic faith leads to authentic joy. And it makes a big difference. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the joyful people of God, not because of personality, not because of immediate circumstances, but because we have a saving relationship with a joyful God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Yeah, yeah it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I was about to let him dance. I didn't want to do that. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Oh, I love that kid. I really do. Okay, see ya. Jim, have a good day, my friend. Thank you. Yes, sir.